spoken about 1940 and 19 of content of thought. For the first foundation of mindfulness, content of thought, fourth foundation of mindfulness. And I mentioned the four great efforts, which mean not to keep unwholesome thoughts, but change them into wholesome ones. And with that we discuss the hindrances, which are all unwholesome, and all of them having an opposite that we can use in order to substitute and to learn to drop. The main thing with that is that through the meditative practice we learn not to believe what we're thinking if it's unwholesome. Practically everybody believes what they're thinking because they're thinking it. That's not a good enough reason to believe it just because one is thinking it. Now a meditator must find that out within the first moments actually or first weeks of meditation that there's no need to believe anything that the mind is throwing up because actually one wants to meditate and the mind is thinking and it's thinking all sorts of things which can make one unhappy. Why one should believe that is a myth. It's absurd and everybody does it. So in order to change one's mind, which we're doing all the time anyway, but in order to change it to the point where we're able to either drop or substitute or use um, the uh, intermediate step of thinking of something entirely different, it's necessary that we don't believe that, what the mind is throwing up. Now, when we need to make a living or decide which way to go in the car or make a decision what to buy, well, we'll have to make a decision and do it. But we don't have to believe, and these are neutral decisions. They're neither wholesome nor unwholesome. They're just in order to keep alive. But if we continue to believe the thoughts which are negative, which are, as they are called in, in Buddhist terminology, unwholesome, if we continue to believe our fears, our rejections, our worries, if we believe them, we can't change them. So a meditator who has been labeling and has learned to label the thoughts that arise must know within a very, very short period of time that all that arises just arises and ceases again and can be changed. It doesn't have to stay that way. And so we change it in the meditation into attention on the breath or on the prevailing meditation subject and in daily life we change it to something wholesome. If we don't get that first point that we don't believe our own thinking anymore 
we won't get to the second one, to substitute, to change. So it's very important that we investigate this. One of the things that one can easily see is that I am the only one that's thinking like that amongst five or six billion people. So how can that be true? Is it really possible that I've got the right slant on it and nobody else does? Very unlikely, isn't it? And if I were to say my thoughts to a person who is with me, so having the same situation and maybe even the same family or the same um, interest, one can be quite sure that person isn't thinking the same thing. It's very rare that another person should think, even along the same lines that one is thinking, never mind the same thing. So maybe that will help to recognize the fact that it's absurd to believe negative thinking, which has nothing to do with the fact that there's a lot of things in the world which aren't the way they should be. Why is that? Because there's a lot of things within us that aren't the way they should be. The macrocosm and the microcosm, they relate to each other in complete connection. So why believe anything that would make one unhappy? And on top of it would make not only oneself unhappy, but probably one's surroundings also, the people around one. It's um, If we don't have that within us, that we stop believing what we're thinking, we haven't got a handle on the spiritual path. As long as we believe everything that we're thinking, we are in a trap. Most people are. They believe what they're thinking, and some people handle that in a way which is also not useful. I've mentioned it yesterday, but I'd like to mention it again because it is um, not as rare as one might think. They're quite aware of the fact that unwholesome thinking uh, gives them a feeling of unhappiness. So instead of being aware of what's really happening, they're trying to make out everything is wonderful. But it isn't. It just is. It's neither terrible nor wonderful. It is. And if one can't see the reality of the way things are, one can't come to real insight. So even when one thinks everything is just wonderful, that too doesn't have to be believed. It's very rarely that something is wonderful. An enlightened one is wonderful. The um, experience of jhana, while it's lasting, is wonderful. The feeling of love within oneself is wonderful. And I think with that we have exhausted the wonderful things. The rest just are. That's it. And it's a big mistake to try to... Um, eliminate negativity through the 
imagination of the um, utopia. It's just as big a mistake. It's the other extreme. Extreme on one side is things aren't the way they ought to be, or true, or everything is just marvelous. Both are extremes, and neither one will give us an insight. But what will give us an insight is that thoughts are just arise and cease, and that we don't have to live with thoughts ever that bring unhappiness. One happy person creates happiness in the world. But not because that happy person now thinks everything is just fantastic, but because there is inner joy independent of outer experience. And for that we need the understanding that what we think is not necessarily so. And if it isn't happiness producing, we can change it. Now, that we can't always change it immediately and that we cannot always catch it in time, that's a second matter, which is quite true. But at least we should know that it's possible and that it's just a matter of practice to do it. The uh, the second foundation of mindfulness are feelings. Pali Vedana Nupasana. And we have an array of possibilities there of what to become mindful of. The most important aspect of it are our emotions. Feelings do entail a physical sensation and emotion, the two. But with the physical sensation, we react with an emotion. So as we have them, the emotion becomes most important. So, as we have talked about the um, way to substitute and change and let go with thoughts, we have the same with our emotions. And there we have something which is um, very important and can't be said and thought about often enough. We have the four emotions which are the only ones, the Buddha said, worth having. In Pali they are the Brahma Viharas. Now a Vihara is an abode, a place to live. Our new forest monastery in Germany is called Metta Vihara, a place to live with metta, or to learn metta, or to have metta, or whatever. A vihara is not necessarily a monastery. A vihara is a place to live. And brahmas are the 
God, the highest four realms of the 31 realms of existence. So the Brahma Viharas are very often translated as divine abodes. We don't need to think that in order to practice or perfect these four emotions, we have to become godlike, or we have to get rid of this um, existence as a human being and have another existence. Nothing of the sort. What it actually means is that when we do practice those four and get them to the point where they are the most noticeable within us, we are actually creating paradise within, the divine abode within. We can live within ourselves in a way which is secure, which is um, equanimous, peaceful, happiness producing for ourselves and others, and comes to the point at one stage, and we've practiced long enough, where these emotions are no longer dependent upon outer circumstances. Now, those of you who've been in my courses know what they are. In uh, Pali, Metta Karuna Mudita Upeka, loving-kindness, compassion, joy with others, and equanimity. Again, they are four headings which encompass all our wholesome, positive, helpful, loving emotions. For instance, the emotion of being helpful of giving also would fall under loving kindness. And the Buddha very often did this in many, many instances, just like I said that the five hindrances have derivatives. They have, um, they are like um, headings for our difficulties. The same is with the Brahma Vihara. The same is with these four supreme emotions. They all have derivatives, and the, which is a good thing, because when we hear that we should love everybody, the mind immediately replies, oh, that's a bit much. In fact, there's a, there was a very funny picture postcard I got sent one time. There's a, a sort of a figure, well, that looked like a like a Mickey Mouse or something. And this Mickey Mouse was saying, I love everybody. And to the right, a monster appeared. And it said, I am everybody. So this is uh, another warning, which also happens uh, to people that don't in investigate themselves very well. It's wishful thinking. I love everybody equally well. It's great. It's an ideal. It's the goal. But it's not the reality. 
it's what we need to learn but it's not what's happening now and we should be satisfied with the fact when we recognize that we don't love everybody equally because then we can do something about it if we don't recognize it if we think we love everybody and there are any number of people who think that the person they love least is usually themselves people who think like that then they haven't got any way to practice they think they love everybody equally but when we realize we don't we've got something to do so we would be should be happy to find out uh, love is a word which is loaded with all sorts of um, meanings in all languages of course in English just as much as in any other language and it seems to mean something specific to each person and there are some general specifics that we believe love to be we believe love to be this relationship from one person to another and we believe love to be the love of a mother for children and very often the mother expects the children to love her back the same way and we also believe that love has to have a recipient and we also believe that love has can only be extended to that which is lovable then we also believe that love has to be reciprocal we also believe that the other person whoever it is that we love must want to be loved and that we can only love if there is a specific person around to love that last one is the greatest absurdity and the most um, um, most cause for unhappiness again we have six billion people and if we need one of those in order to be able to love we're limiting ourselves to such a degree that we never find out what love really means none of that what I've just enumerated means love none of it means meta loving kindness it hasn't got even a resemblance to it it's usually self-perpetuating it's egocentric because if I love I want to get something back for it and there's got to be something there someone or something which is also uh, one of the reasons when the religion and why religion doesn't work if I've made up my mind I'm going to love God I want to get something out of that at least grace it doesn't work has never worked and never will love is a quality of the heart which actually can be learned which is a very very favorable situation because if we couldn't learn it we'd be stuck with this idea that it is a matter of chance 
it's a matter of luck or chance and we meet somebody who is willing to love us and so we can love them back or vice versa. It's all very nice if somebody else loves us because it supports our ego illusion in the best possible way because we can tell ourselves I'm really lovable. That person loves me. Even if it's only one among six billion. Should that person change his or her mind and things uh, fall apart as they're apt to do after some time, then, not always, but very often, uh, then all of a sudden the idea enters the mind, I'm not lovable. And so the ego is crushed and we're facing a tragedy because that one person has changed his or her mind. And we have forgotten that changing one's mind is a natural phenomena. Just like everything else changes, so the mind changes constantly. So we're facing a tragedy which usually takes you two years to get over, and then we start all over again. And we do that four, five, six, seven times. Um, some people find out after four times that it doesn't work. Some people never find out. They keep on going. And uh, the, uh, this idea of love is nothing but a way to relate to one other person. And it creates enormous dependence. Being dependent on the emotions of another. Well, that's exactly the opposite of what the Buddha taught. He taught freedom and freedom is independence. You've got to be independent in order to be free. So, this kind of relationship, while it may be very useful and certainly has, in the social context, an enormous use, can be considered to be a seedbed it can be considered to be a starting point where we can learn what it means to be very careful of other people's feelings, where we can learn to be less egocentered, where we can learn to comply with somebody else's wishes. And all these things are very useful. And we can also learn what it feels like to have a warm, and caring feeling. But we can never learn in these relationships what it means to have a pure loving feeling which is totally independent of the fact of another, whether another person is actually there. With this kind of relationship, love, what we have is we are adamant that the other person has to be there. And because of that, there's fear. And fear is equal to hate. It's one of the derivatives of hate. doesn't mean we hate the other person. We hate the idea of loss. And since everybody knows that everything is impermanent, 
the idea of loss is always present. Mothers with small children are particularly prone to that fear. And while they love their kids dearly, they are constantly in a stew and in an uproar that these kids should never, nothing should happen to them. It takes years and years of practice to be able to let go of that fear. It's um, the only way to do that is to work on the contemplation of one's own death and the death of one's loved ones which we have already done here. This is one of the the strongest fear symptoms which are confused with love. Real love has nothing to do with fear. Nothing at all. Real love is embracing, caring, togetherness, warmth, and the giving of oneself. Now the togetherness doesn't have to be physical. Not at all. I'm sure you can now love a person who's not present. There's no need for physical togetherness. What love really entails is learning to let go of hate. It's as we let go of our negative reactions, as we learn to let go of that, what we dislike, we have more chance of loving that which is around. Now love can be for people, for nature and for an ideal. These are the three kinds of love that we are mostly concerned with. The most trouble we have with loving people. And why do we have so much trouble with loving people? Mainly because we don't love ourselves. We know all the difficulties that are harbored in our heart and mind and we judge them and criticize them. And we don't love ourselves in spite of them and with them, but we sort of make a division. We love that part of us which is nice, and we don't love that part of us which we consider not nice. So we've got a half and half love, and we do exactly the same with everybody else. Well, that cannot bring purity of heart. The Buddha's teaching, the path, is a path of purification. The most extensive commentary on the Buddha's teaching is the Visuddhi Magga. Magga path and Visuddhi is purification. It was written in the 5th century by a monk called Buddha Gosa. And it is the the most um, exact and explicit commentary on everything the Buddha said. And the Buddha's path is the path of purification because only when there is purification in heart and mind can we actually experience and recognize 
things in a totally different way. As long as this purification hasn't happened, hate and greed are overpowering. doesn't mean that we hate people very strongly or somebody. It doesn't mean that we have to have things all the time. It just means that we are concerned with wanting and getting rid of. It brings a great deal of anxiety. It brings restlessness. We have already discussed that. But it also prohibits the loving heart. Now, if we look at ourselves in this half-and-half fashion, there's the nice part of me, and I can actually have a good feeling about that. And there's the not-nice part of me, and I have no good feeling at all about that. I have to criticize it and judge it. That's not love. Not at all. Loving oneself doesn't mean that we now, from then moment when we've learned to love ourselves, no longer recognize the things that we need to change. The two have no nothing in common. The formula is recognition, no blame, change. We can recognize in ourselves, we can recognize in others difficulties, hindrances, obstacles. Everything is there to be recognized, but nothing is there to be disliked. We usually say to that, we don't love the crime, but that's no reason why we shouldn't love the criminal. Now, obviously, we don't meet so many criminals, but in our eyes, and with the way we actually confront people, they might as well be. Because we have constant judgments and ideas how they ought to be, which are strictly our own ideas. And as I said before, there's no point in believing our own thoughts. None whatsoever. Unless we have found the way of true inner joy and happiness independent of anything else. And then we won't think those thoughts because they don't make anybody happy. We confront ourselves and we confront others as if we had been called upon to be judge and jury. And to be judge and jury, first of all, we don't even have the necessary qualifications. And secondly, it's not a very pleasant way to be. And yet everybody does it and believes it. And because we believe it, we are stymied as far as love is concerned. What we can do and what we need to do is to use our everyday life, all the confrontations we have with other people, to recognize the fact whether there's actually love in our hearts or not. The Buddha gave a simile or an analogy for love, which is very useful for people who have children. 
He said that one loves everybody just as a mother loves her own child. So we have a sort of criteria. If we have had a good relationship with our own mother, we can turn that around and say we, the criteria is to love everybody just the way our mother loves us. If we have children, we can see within the first minute of looking that that particular child that totally different has a totally different reaction from us as far as love and care and concern is concerned than anybody else. The difference is tremendous. In fact, it is so enormous that one can't even bring the two together. Now there we have something that we can at least use as a model or even or using one's own mother. If we don't have any anything like that as a model, we need to use the person who we most love as a criteria or a model. The feelings we have for that one person but not those of which also arise, of course, when we have this strong relationship, jealousy, judgment, um, the kind of uh, criticizing that we do, the uh, half-and-half affair, nothing like that. We need to use that feeling, which is actual love and purity of love, and then see how much of that can we extend to anybody, to whoever comes into our orbit of meeting them. And we will find that very little of that arises. It's natural if one hasn't worked on it. One has an interest in people from whom one can get something. Now it may be that one gets from them some support. It may be that one can get some um, interesting new knowledge. It may be that one gets uh, physical help. One has an interest in them. Why? Because it's Again, ego-centered. What am I getting out of it? And we forget completely that if we have actually educated our heart to be loving, that's the most we ever get out of anything. There's nothing to be compared with that. We don't have to look for anybody to love us because anybody who loves us is just an ego support. It's their love, it's not ours. We don't even have to look for anybody whom we can love. If we are able to learn this impersonal and unconditional love, then we have that within us which gives us the greatest security, gives us a feeling of ease 
and a feeling of inner warmth, a feeling of peacefulness. And why is that? Because we know that we're going to react to whatever happens once we have made it fairly strong within. We're going to react to whatever happens, not with anger, not with hate, not with dislike, but with lovingness. And that gives self-confidence, clarity, ease, feeling of well-being, inner well-being. And it removes and eliminates all the negative uh, happenings which happen in the mind and heart. Nobody always gets what they want. We always get something that we don't want. Even the Buddha got things he didn't want. It's strictly our reaction to that which makes it either just a happening or some sort of um, tragedy or some sort of um, unfavorable situation. If we don't react like that, nothing like that will ever arise. And what we usually do, if somebody makes something happen that we don't want, we start disliking that person. There's no need for that. We start disliking that person immediately. There is this inner turmoil. And we either want to change the person or we want to change our situation or we want to find something, some outer change. Don't like what's going on. Well, I'm sure that all of us have made a lot of outer changes in this life. Some of them may have been quite valuable, but none of them will have produced inner happiness and inner peace independent of outer situations. That can only happen within us. And that can only happen if we learn to love. And learning to love does not mean that we then have these rose-tinted glasses on that everybody is wonderful. Frankly speaking, nobody is wonderful. Just that Arahant is wonderful. And there are so few of them around, we don't even have to discuss that. Everybody is. That's more like it. And since we have the ability to love, why in heaven's name don't we use it? It's a cause for great inner joy, the cause for great inner security. And we do have other abilities. We have the ability to criticize, to dislike, to be fearful, to worry. We have all those abilities. We use them constantly. That's rather, rather foolish, isn't it? We use all those abilities and we actually uh, perfect them. 
very good at them instead of using the ability to love which we could just as well perfect and become very good at one of the things which happens when we try to do that and obviously if you have uh, heard me often enough and uh, heard about the Buddha's teaching often enough one will try not always with immediate success but one of the things that happens is that one also creates a fair bit of compassion in one's heart for oneself because one sees quite clearly the detrimental effects of self-criticism self-judgment and this half and half love that I talked about and then if one can feel compassion for this person that could just as well have learned to love properly it's not so difficult to feel that same compassion for others it's a little easier to be compassionate than to be loving to be compassionate does not mean that one pities oneself or others the uh, far enemy of compassion is cruelty which is quite easy to see but the near enemy is pity pity is separating oneself being an observer that is still criticizing when we look at somebody else and we see or look at that person aren't they having an awful time we don't have empathy we don't have that with feeling we just feel very sorry that the other person is having a terrible time and underneath all that it's very likely that we also think maybe without verbalizing boy am I glad it's not me that's not compassion com is with and passion is a strong feeling a strong with feeling it's empathy it only arises if we've seen our own difficulties without criticizing them just recognizing them it takes a clear mind to do that it takes a mind that's interested in truth in truth on all levels it takes a mind that is willing to be truthful about itself without any exaggerations one way or another and without any blame once we have seen ourselves as we really are it's not easy to be a human being and it's even more difficult to be a good human being if we can see ourselves like that with all the details maybe which we can um, get hold of we can see everybody else like that and then when we have that with feeling they're the same as me they're also looking for inner happiness and inner peace they uh, haven't found it and they're also trying to love 
and quite often they're not. The uh, of love is a quotation and it's most difficult in that. But the near enemy is attraction and often also called affection. And it is an enemy because of the fact that if we are really strongly attached to one or several people with Attachment means being stuck too. And we will find it difficult to expand the heart into the intimate, where love becomes a natural way of being and not a reciprocal arrangement or an answer to something that we find lovable. Love is actually, and metta in the Buddhist word, is something that is of infinite possibility and can be extended to everything that comes in within our experience. Most of the things that come into our experience are people. And all of us have daily, hourly, weekly um, opportunities to practice with the people we meet. Now, even here, where um, you're keeping noble silence, that doesn't stop one from practicing love. On the contrary, it might be even easier. Nobody says anything that we can object to, and we will find it easier. And wherever we are, we meet people. There are lots of them on this little planet of ours. And we have so many relationships which are a quite a neutral relationship. They don't seem to have anything in them other than utilitarian purposes, like the postman, or a salesperson in a shop, or a tradesman, anything like that. Well, we can practice love on all of them. Sometimes people say, well, but maybe they don't want to be loved. That's an impossibility. First of all, everybody wants to be loved. That's a fact, and it's a... Um, law of nature. But secondly, it's not verbalization. We don't walk up to the postman and say, I love you. He might like it, actually, but it would be rather um, um, strange, wouldn't it? It's depending entirely on what we feel in, within ourselves. Obviously, we feel, if we haven't practiced, we feel absolutely nothing. The only thing we might feel is if he comes very late, he might feel uh, upset. Why is he so late? I want my mail earlier, or something like that. And the salespeople in a in a shop, or the cashier at the cash register, what do we feel? Nothing, nothing at all. Well, that's where we can practice. These are the people that are 
confidence in each one to us. We can practice with the people very much so that we are attached to. Can we loosen this attachment to become a little more independent with our emotions? Can we love them without having to have them? It's a um, very important practice. Hardly anything that's equally important. The only other thing which is equally important is not to believe what we're thinking and to substitute the unwholesome with the wholesome. Loving people without having them. It's a wonderful practice. And it actually creates within the heart a freedom to love. It makes it free to love anyone. So that's a practice with those we love, then there's a practice with the neutral ones. And then, of course, we have those that irk us, those that we don't like. We're doing all the wrong things. We don't protect our environment, or we are having the wrong politics, or they don't talk nice to us, or they're not supportive, or they don't help us, or whatever they're doing wrong. Well, those are the ones, of course, that we have to work with, too. Maybe a little more difficult. But then, that doesn't matter. Because we know how to do the easy things. We have already perfected our ability to dislike, to reject, to criticize. Now we're doing something entirely different. We're perfecting our ability to love that which we may not find at all lovable. Now, if we have somebody in our life who we think is doing all the wrong things, it's very foolish doing all the wrong things. Well, that may be so, it may be quite right, it's quite possible. But that person is at that stage of doing those things there are, first of all, karmic resultants for that person, and we have already discussed karma and put it into context with our thinking. Well, equally so, our emotions make karma. Every time we make get angry, we make bad karma. Every time we're loving, we make good karma. We don't have to say a word. We don't have to do a thing. We just have to feel it. So a person whom we think is doing all the wrong things, foolish or not wholesome, that may be that person's karmic resultant. They are at that stage of doing it. And maybe they will even learn from it. So the only reaction to that kind of situation is compassion with that person not anger because they're doing the wrong thing. And if those things that they're doing wrong have any kind of repercussion on us, the repercussion is much stronger if we on top of it dislike the person. We've got two repercussions. We've got the thing that doesn't work the way we want it, and we've got the dislike. It's not foolish to make oneself more unhappy than necessary. 
But if we see that the person is doing these things because they are under the mistaken uh, impression that whatever it is they're doing will bring them happiness, it's not so difficult to have compassion and a feeling of warmth towards that difficult person. So we have three kinds of people. We have the neutral ones, we have the loved ones, and we have the difficult ones. And we need to work with all of them. The, uh, the neutral ones are those that we don't have any particular feelings for. Some people find it quite easy to love nature. Flowers, bushes, trees, meadows, valleys, mountains, clouds, moon, stars, all those things. Or go right ahead and love them, but then forget about people. The more we can love anything, whatever it may be, the more we get to know that feeling. And the more we get to know that feeling, the easier it will be for us to actually practice it. Practicing it doesn't mean that we have to go around with a silly grin on our face and tell everybody, I love everybody, I've mentioned that already. It just means what's going on within. It means that safety and security of a pure heart. The impurity of the heart gives us a lot of trouble. And it's a matter of practice. And it's not done immediately. It's something we can work on. And I think I've given the possibilities that we can work with. Joy with others is also a very important aspect, and I'll briefly mention it now because it creates joy and joy is a prerequisite for meditation we're always hoping to get joy out of meditation which we will eventually or we will if we can um, be concentrated enough for the absorption but without joy to sit down with we can't concentrate. A mind which is um, concerned with problems or with worry or with any kind of negativity won't be able to meditate. We can, if we have a mind that is too worried, too discursive, too um, negative, we can at times find ourselves in a sort of um, cloudy limbo where we don't know what's going on at all. Don't mistake that for meditation. It's not. The uh, way to recognize the two differences are if it's a cloudy limbo that um, we are in and don't know what's going on. After the meditation, we feel tired and we want to lie down. And if we've been actually concentrated and experienced the uh, concentrated meditation or any of the uh, absorption, we feel energetic. There's additional energy in the mind. 
พระอิสุทธิพระวันท่านอัศวิลาพระวันท่านไอ้เจ้าชาดเนี่ยเป็นไอ้บอกมีประเภท So I'm mentioning that because these possibilities all exist, and one of the things to counteract the um, the one that's not useful is to sit down with joy, joy at being able to practice, joy at seeing the Dhamma, and joy also if we see anybody. Who seems to be sitting really well and seems to be quite concentrated. Now, whether they are or not is none of our business. But the thing that very often arises in the mind is not joy, but it is comparison. Oh, look at that person! They can really do it. I can't. I wonder if I ever will. They've probably been meditating a long time already. Well, looks like they're very concentrated. Hmm. Maybe they're not, huh? So the mind goes on and on and on and talks about all sorts of things instead of being joyful. Just being joyful that there's somebody sitting there nicely, and it looks as if they're concentrated. Period. That's it. Finished. And uh, we have joy at them. The same as in everyday life, of course. Something nice happens to someone, and we happen to like that person. We don't find it so difficult to have joy with them. Well, let's say it happens to our own child. Gets really good marks in school, or finally、uh, graduates from university. Oh, well, we're really joyful. But the same happens to the kid down the street. And we hear about it. Are we really equally joyful? Investigate. In fact, it's probably leaving us entirely cold. But I,、uh, I remember that kid when I used to throw football around my oh my god. <laughs> so, joy with others has not only. The result of being able to be joyful when one meditates, but it has the result of having more joy in the world. Our enemy is envy, of course. But when we are joyful, we also exude joyfulness, and other people have benefit from that. And There is so little joy in the world that, and we also ourselves don't have so many occasions where we can really feel joyful. That if we have others that are having a joyful situation, we can expand on that joy within ourselves, and then there'll be that much more joy in the world. And anyone who is joyful. Can get the benefit of the infinite consciousness or the cosmic consciousness, which contains joy. But we can only get the benefit of that if we already have it within us, so that it's like an echo. 
we only get it if, as an echo. If we have anger in us, it's a sensor. We get more from the cosmic consciousness as an echo. In fact, if we are perpetually angry, where well, some people are, not so many, but some are, they think that there's nothing but anger in the world. That's the final uh, conclusion they come to. It's foolish, but then, of course, mankind is foolish. Otherwise, we wouldn't kill each other. So, joy with others, sympathetic joy, is a very important aspect of our own inner joy, but also of adding to the joy in the world. Each one of us is the world. As small and insignificant as each one of us might be, we are a link in the chain. And if that link is strong and happy, it certainly strengthens the chain. We need to remember that when the negativities overcome us. It's so easy to forget. And actually, when you hear it, quite obvious, isn't it, the whole thing. One could actually say, so what's new about all that? The only thing that's new about it is we constantly forget and follow our instincts and our impulses. And if we don't forget, we have a different possibility. The last one, the fourth one, the equanimity, is one of the seven factors of enlightenment. And we'll get to that in due course. So I won't mention it now at all. It's considered to be the highest of all emotions. And it is actually the only one of the four emotions which is a factor of enlightenment. Because it sort of embeds within it all other three. So we'll leave that until we get to, the, to that. To recapitulate, the same what we do with our thoughts, we do with our emotions. We substitute. We drop the unwholesome, substitute the unwholesome with the wholesome. Or, if we can't do either, we go off the unwholesome, the negative emotion, and try to be joyful about a beautiful flower until we get back with a calm heart and mind to practice love towards the difficult person. It's a constant practice part. It's an important thing to remember that practice does not mean sitting on a little pillow. Buddha never said on a little pillow, he said on a heap of grass, kusha grass, okay. But it, maybe he shaped it like a pillow, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Sitting on a pillow is a means to an end. The practice is from morning to night. We don't make karma with our dreams. Well, that's a good thing, isn't it? At least we are uh, released from that. But from morning to night, it's a practice part. And the more often we forget, the more difficult it becomes. And then we need to be reminded, and then we start again. And then after a while, it sort of peters out, because we think 
other things are more important. How could anything else be more important? What could be more important than a loving heart, inner peace, and inner happiness? Maybe you should take your diary and write down what you think could be more important. And if you don't find anything that's more important, then write those three things down as being most important. So that when you start forgetting to practice, maybe you can look it up and say, well, that's right. I did think that was most important. And then you can also maybe write down the things that in your daily life take you away from that practice. You see, it's not a matter of time. It's not uh, one has to make one's living and then one can't have do these other things. A loving heart is uh, one is able to arouse while one is doing any kind of work. It doesn't matter what it is. Or mindfulness. In fact, in many uh, types of work, mindfulness is absolutely essential. One has to pay attention to what one is doing. So as one pays attention to what one is doing, one is also without any negativity. And we don't, in our daily work, if we have unwholesome thoughts, we can drop them and change them just as well as we can here. So, none of the things that we think we have to do first before we can do that really need to be done first. All this happens within us, in our daily living. We'll put your attention on the breath for just a few moments. And I'd like you to investigate within yourself and in your memory. Under what circumstances and also how often there are negative reactions within you towards another person. Have a look and see how often this happens. Be quite truthful about it to yourself and then try to see what the trigger might be. Why it's happening. And now think of exactly that self-same person that you may have remembered as having had negative feelings for.
same-sex substituted with a loving feeling, a compassionate feeling, an embracing feeling, not taking into consideration any of the reasons or justifications for having been negative, just changing. See if you can do it for that same person that you remembered having been negative about. Think of uh, the people whom you usually meet in your daily activities. Maybe at work or wherever you meet certain people over and over again. And investigate whether you're quite indifferent emotionally towards them. And then, try to see whether you can feel warmth, an embracing feeling, feeling of togetherness, helpfulness, care and concern for these people whom you meet again and again in your daily life. Whoever comes to mind, one or several, doesn't matter. Now think of those people or one person with whom you are particularly closely connected. And check out your feelings for that person. How does that feeling differ from your feelings for others? Is there more warmth, more care, more concern, more dependence?
and now investigate whether this particular person or persons, whether you could love this person in the same way without that person actually being around. Being far away, not coming to visit, and you have the same love. And if you find that you can't, then investigate. Why not? Have a look inside of yourself and recognize the difficulties. Difficulties that any human being has. Difficulty in loving, in wholesome thinking, any kind of difficulty. Just have a look at it. And then embrace yourself with compassion for that difficulty. Don't blame. Don't criticize. Have that compassionate feeling of warmth and care, of understanding and accepting, and embrace yourself with that. now have a look at the person or persons towards whom you've had negative feelings, rejection, and see the same difficulties in that person that you found in yourself, and embrace that person with compassion. And now we'll use those people that we feel quite indifferent about. 
whom we know and meet, but where we haven't really aroused a feeling of love. And again, we see the same difficulties that we have ourselves. And we can embrace them with compassion and have that feeling of togetherness. Now we'll think of that person or the person with whom we have the closest connection, where there is a feeling of warmth and love, but also judgment and criticism. See the difficulties within yourself, see the same ones in that person and embrace that person with compassion. 